Welcome to Isle of Man, a new program dealing with concepts and constructs in modern masculinity. I'm Sam Evans. With me as always, Zach Pennington. Zach, here we are. It's afternoon time mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Uh, how are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Um, we're right. We're right around uh, lunchtime, the lunch hour. Yes. When a person starts to really uh, get that hunger to to keep their day going, I don't know. If, have you eaten yet today, Zach? Not yet. Because let me tell you, if it were January mm-hmm. or so, I could point you to the best place in Los Angeles to satisfy your hunger. Uh, I'm speaking, of course, of Trejo's Tacos. Oh, tell me about it. Well, uh, Trejo's Tacos, it's opening soon. It's a uh, classic uh, taqueria setup. And uh, they're going to be opening close to the Miracle Mile in Los Angeles, right? So you can do your gallery visits uh, right in between your, your taco pickup. Uh, they're going to be opening at... Um, at uh, don't worry, we'll edit this stuff. They're going to be opening uh, right down there at um, 1048 South La Brea. And uh, in the meantime, you know, to whet your, whet your appetite until you can actually get one of those delicious uh, pescado tacos, mm-hmm. one of those, uh, you know, pibil tacos, lingua, mm-hmm. um, camarones. Uh, in the meantime, you can pick up some excellent uh, Trejo's Tacos merchandise if you if you want to go to trejostacos.com slash store. You got a you got a baby tee. Mm-hmm. You could wear that one. You got some long sleeve tees. And then you got the classic Trejo's Tacos short sleeve tee. Mm-hmm. Those are all available now. And as I said, the actual restaurant is going to be opening any day now. Great. By any day now, I mean in several weeks, probably. Okay. Hopefully. So Trejo's Tacos, fill up Los Angeles. Um, if you want to try tacos, hmm. try Trejo's Tacos, official sponsor of Isle of Man. <laughs> we actually can't say that legally, I think. But Okay, so try, try, try Trace Tacos. If you... <laughs> If you want to eat <laughs> three tacos, if you want to eat three tacos this holiday season, try Trace tra- try, try, Trejo's tacos. Try Trace Trejo's tacos. Try Trace Trejo's tacos. Trejo's tacos opening soon. Official sponsor in Los Angeles. Now that we got that out the way, what else is going on here, Zach? Pay the bills. You gotta pay those gimmicks they keep sending in the mail called bills. Let me tell you, we got to pay some bills around my house here. Yeah. Woo. Hachi machi. Spicier than a Trejo Camarones. Anyway, you think they're going to have some agua frescas over there? The Trejo stock? Very probably. Probably so. Yeah. I enjoy the horchata. Yeah. <laughs> Do you like any of those? I love horchata. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Anyway, in other news, um, of course, um, you saw Los Angeles Laker Kobe Bryant. 
I mean, I didn't see it. No, but I, I'm just I'm waiting for a normal human response. As you saw, Kobe Bryant, of course, uh, this week announced his retirement. This is going to be his final season, mm-hmm. 20th season. Kobe, of course, the Black Mamba. He's on our uh, race of man list right now. Where is he right now? Where we got him? It's <clears throat> like number four. Kobe Bryant right now we got at number five between Count Dooku, Sir Christopher Lee, and John Cage. That's pretty good. That's not bad. That's pretty good. One of the few living figures in our top five. Um, one of two. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And one of few on the list in general, right? Yeah. So that's pretty good. Probably the youngest... Definitely the youngest guy we got on this list, right? Yeah. Not bad. But he's old as shit now. Wow. Anyway, Kobe announced it's going to be his last season, 20th season in the NBA. It's been quite a ride for all of us. And, you know, so the way, and as you know, the the way Kobe announced uh, his retirement was he wrote this poem. Yeah. On the the Players' Tribune called Dear Basketball. Do you think this has something to do with his muse that we were talking about? (laughs) Kobe's muse? Yeah. Uh, well, if this poem was to be extrapolated, it would suggest that his muse is, in fact, basketball itself. I see. Although, the documentary Kobe Bryant's Muse didn't actually do a very good job of clearly stating that point, if that was, if that was the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Dear Basketball, not a very accomplished poem. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, fits nicely. You know, after last week, we, we talked about um, Charlie Sheen's open letter. Yes. We talked about some classic Steve Albini open letters. Mm-hmm. So this is just kind of another good one in the... Uh, in the uh, oh, it's longer than I thought. Lexicon. It's pretty short. What do you got here? You got... Uh, How many stanzas? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven... Eight stanzas and one standalone line. I fell in love with you. <laughs> um, Do you want to approach this in a sort of like you're gonna you're gonna read this for us? Give like a dramatic reading yeah. of your basketball. I mean, just give me this. Wait, just give me this first stanza. <clears throat> But I want it sort of slam poetry style. I don't do that. You're not going to do that? No, but I can, I'll can. i try to give you like a more, you know, dignified classical recitation, I guess. Okay. <clears throat> I mean, it's not really verse, so there's not going to be a lot of musicality to this reading because Kobe doesn't really, doesn't really write in verse. It's kind of a free... I feel like you could turn this into something, but, you know, do what you will. I just don't have a heart, Zach. Um, From the moment I started rolling my dad's tube socks and shooting imaginary game-winning shots in the Great Western Forum, I knew one thing was real. I fell in love with you. That's how it starts. Okay. Was that disappointing? Yeah, I'm kind of let down. Sorry. So that's Kobe's Dear Basketball. Probably not making it into like the best American poetry of the year omnibus or anything, mm-hmm. but uh, heartfelt, I guess, sort of. 
He's an interesting guy. Kobe's like a weird guy. He's got like this weird um, classical cultured streak. I think largely maybe because he grew up in Italy and he's had kind of a, he had kind of a weird childhood and you know there's like there's like a famous video where after he loses a game he like goes and plays some Verdi on the piano and he's just like hmm. a you know classical brooder. Anyway, he'll be missed. Kobe Bryant, the Black Mamba. Dear basketball guys, got to they got to keep doing these open. What do you what do you think about this manly impulse to write the open letter, write the poem on the blog or whatever? It's kind of a seems to be kind of ramping up these days. Yeah, I mean, in Charlie Sheen's case, it's a little you know he's responding to a uh, he's responding to a more of a traumatic event in his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's more of an impetus, I guess. It's this is more celebrate or self celebratory. I think this is a pretty traumatic event for yeah. Kobe because you know his vibe is like what he says. What he says is uh, he said he says I can't love you obsessively for much longer. There's a real there's a real ennui in this poem about mm. you know his he wants to just keep doing it but his body has betrayed him and I mean I know you don't follow maybe the hoops is as closely as some but uh that's presumptuous he's not having a great year kobe mm. he's not doing too great this year so i think there is a sense that he is e- not able to go out on top so there's kind of a bittersweetness you know a lot of guys in the league are talking about it's real hard to see such a great competitor you know going out like this and that's pretty analogous to uh, admitting to the world that you have hiv i guess because like Charlie Sheen's sexual career is analogous to Kobe Bryant's basketball career or something. I'm being facetious, okay. but All it right. seems a little less tragic to me. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah, sure. Kobe's fine. He'll be fine. Yeah. He'll be fine. Wild thing, huh? Um You know, yeah, he says my heart can take the pounding. My mind can handle the grind. That has a little bit of a ring to it. Almost. But my body knows it's time to say goodbye. Hmm. I kind of wish those were like lyrics in like a Kel song or something, right? Yeah, it seems like... Very cool. There's like a bit of a sexual undertone, right? To, to my heart can take the pounding, my mind can handle the grind. But my body knows it's time to say goodbye. Is it like a sex sex basketball song? Is that the well? <laughs> if he were doing it, it would be a. But if he were doing it, he... we're talking we're talking about R. Kelly here. If that's unclear, yeah. If R. Kelly were doing that, it would be. I mean, you know, Kells is a pretty accomplished baller. Baller himself, he is. Um, he laid down a pretty sweet uh, tray. Trejo with a with <laughs> a threw, cigar in mouth. He right? threw down a pretty good Trejo's taco the other day in Brooklyn, <laughs> Barclays. Um, I mean, if Kells were doing it, it would be even blunter than the. I mean, it would be like it would you know it'd be like called like double dribble or something like I don't know what it would be called <laughs> you know. But that's vivid. Anyway, Kobe, we'll miss you. Yeah. Interesting to see what he goes on to do. I imagine not much. He'll probably do some stuff. Why not? Commentating? Sure. He's a very intelligent, beautiful man. He could do he could do practically anything. 
And he could do nothing. <laughs> Very happily, probably. Sure. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I think, Zach, at this time, it is about the hour at which we must talk about uh, this week in men's history. This week in men's history. November the 24th, 1998. Wu-Tang Clan architect The RZA released his debut solo album, RZA's Bobby Digital in Stereo. Conceived and performed with the voice of his hedonistic superhero alter ego, Bobby, the album combined elements of comic book and science fiction literature to build its Blade Runner neon, honey-deep tweed-soaked world. A landmark in avant-garde hip-hop, the record found RZA utilizing minimal left-field samples and moving more towards original musical composition with an army of keyboards he called his digital orchestra. The first Bobby Digital album remains a high watermark in identity crisis self therapy drug trip hop. And now, Zach, I think it's about time for this week's interview. Uh, we have. M. Lamar, who is a uh, singer, uh, musician, composer, artist of many media, and um, we're going to get to that right now, I think. Zach, if, uh, you know, if you're all ready for this. We are here with M. Lamar, a uh, Negro Gothic devil worshiping free black man in the blues tradition. Hi. M., uh, tell us about your father. About my father? I um, don't know my father. Um, he was never a part of our lives. Um, yeah, I didn't grow up with a father. I was the product, I'm a pro- the product of a single black mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a whole sort of like statistical thing sure. uh, in like left wing circles or whatever, uh, guilt ridden left wing circles. Um, so yeah, my father. I, there, there's nothing to say about him. I don't know him. He wasn't a part of my life. Um, I feel really happy that I didn't actually have a father. I think that my life would have been um, more complicated with a father figure, a patriarchal male figure. Although my mother tried to do her best to be as patriarchal as possible. Mm-hmm. Of course, we know through bell hooks that patriarchy has no gender. Right. Um, and so, yeah, but no, my father is, um, is I mean, obviously that there needed to be one for me to be here, uh, technically and biologically speaking. Um, how did your, uh, in, are there specific ways in which your mother uh, tried to sort of manifest a patriarchal relationship that you can sort of expand upon? I mean, one of the, she would always say I had to be the father or the mother. She would always... Um, talk about sort of like trying to toughen me up in some way, mm-hmm. um, me and my uh, sibling. And um, yeah, she was just trying to sort of like make up for the fact that there was no sort of like male, um, like role model kind of thing, which I think is just absurd, you know, kind of, I think that one doesn't need that sort of thing to become, you know, and, I, and again, I think it was, I, I, I'm better for not having that. Um, but she was just doing her best to be, you know, um, as authoritarian and, um, controlling 
um, as possible. She did a very good job, actually, of all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was in complete fear of my mother uh, growing up. Um, and I mean, if that's what patriarchy is all about, then, you know, she was very emotionally distant. Um, yeah, and, and also withheld affection. Like, the first time I remember her ever, like, hugging me was when we went away to high school. Um, we were like, we, what, you're like, you're freshman year in high school, you know, 13 or 14. And it was the strangest feeling. And I, I, I've, um, when I talked to my sibling about it, um, she says, yeah, because, you know, we have to check. I'd be like, was this strange? You know, like, is it just me? And um, she confirmed that it was a very strange thing. She was like, what is this? This seems like nothing I'd experienced before. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, just that kind of stuff. I think that's why I became really sexually active really early, like at 13, because uh, I just needed someone to touch me um, in an affirming way. Um, yeah, anyway. Do you, that, think, do you think some of your mother's lack of affection was in her attempting to embody a more fatherly aspect as well, or trying trying to be the authoritarian or the fear-inducing uh, authority figure? I, think, I mean, I think that was a part of it. I think it was also about the deep and profound ways in which she was traumatized um, as a child. I mean, my grandfather uh, grew up in a sharecropping situation in Alabama, and um, he was brutalized uh, physically and emotionally and probably sexually. I mean, there, there was never talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, There's probably sexual abuse. I mean, imagine if you, you know, had... Um, you know, you own land and you have these people at your disposal. I mean, I mean, the pervert that I am, sure. you know, I would absolutely be doing all kinds of things with people. It's I, a you quick, know. it's a quick leap to make. Yeah. 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 It's a really easy way to go. So anyway, he was just a very violent, like troubled man uh, who went through a lot of things and he was extremely abusive, um, and extremely, um, yeah, hateful. Um, I told the story last night, actually, during the Q&A of my show at Cooper Union about um, how my mother, when I stopped talking to her about 10 years ago, uh, started going to therapy and had this repressed memory about how um, my grandfather, in a rage, came home um, and my mother was in bed with my grandmother, uh, her mother, and um, he was in a rage and started, like, sort of beating her and then subsequently raping her. My mother was pretending to be asleep so that she wouldn't, you know, get any kind of abuse. Raping your grandmother. Raping my wife. My grandmother, yes, yeah. my grandmother. Which he apparently did often. Sure. Um, so he was just a really violent, violent man. So, so I think that my mother was just a deeply traumatized person from growing up in a deeply traumatized family. Sure. Um, so I think that, you know, we pass these things off um, to our children. I mean, I think particularly in my understanding of this, it's, it's like definitely related to white supremacy and constructions of um, masculinity, black masculinity, and um, sort of uh, the prison that that can become. Um, I mean, my grandfather, I think, was in that prison of um, black masculinity. Uh, is hyper-masculine sort of thing. Um, and it was... Um, really in, dis disabling for him. It was not allowing him to live a full, loving, caring <laughs> existence, at least relative to his family. Sure. Um, my mother hated him till the day he died, actually. She always hated him. For good reason, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so. Yeah, I actually also grew up without, without knowing my father. And, and my older brother, uh, when he was a kid, he famously said to somebody in a defiant way, he said, uh, boys don't need fathers. So you would, yeah. you, would, you would agree with that sentiment. Yeah, I don't really think they do. Um, I really don't. I think that they're often better off without a father. Like my boyfriend always tells me stories about, you know, how his father would just hit him. Um, like that, that was just sort of a part of his growing up. Like mm -hmm. his father would just, in, you know, engage in like 
punching him or like, you know, just sort of knocking him down. I mean, I'm not saying all fathers like that. I mean, I mean sure, there's like a non-patriarchal, non-sort of authoritarian way to be a parent in general, right. uh, and in particularly a father, I would hope. Sure. Um, can I can I ask you then? I guess I'm interested in in lieu of not uh, perhaps growing up with with a father um, in your in your household in your life. Were there were there other figures either in your family or in popular culture or in culture in general that you would say contributed to your ideas of masculinity or forming your ideas of manhood or or do you kind of would you say that you have always sort of rejected any any traditional kind of uh, masculine ideation? I would say that I've always rejected uh, any kind of traditional um, masculine iteration. I mean, I'm very, in a way, invested in masculinity and, and sort of like being male identified. But um, yeah, there's, there are very few. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, I saw a little Richard on your list. I mean, I, not that I, I mean, anyway, my personality is anything like little Richard's, but I found, I always found him to be very inspiring sure. um, in, his, in his freedom. I mean, he was just such a free person. Uh, I mean, little Richard to me is, is, um, is super, 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 super important uh, figure. Um, and so, I mean, but I mean, in terms of, I mean, I found myself drawn, I mean, I guess like most homosexual men uh, to female figures. Like, but, but I mean, I, I sing, I mean, I'm a singer and musician, and I was always drawn to these like female opera singers mm-hmm. um, in terms of like the, I mean, it, was, it wasn't so much I didn't want to like embody their femininity or anything like that. I was just interested in that soprano or sort of mezzo-soprano voice or contralto voice in the, in the case of Marian Anderson mm-hmm. uh, or Jesse Norman has this sort of like dramatic soprano that can be a mezzo sound or an alto sound. Um, I mean, I was just obsessed with those that sound as a child. And so I think that was a really formative thing. But in terms of models of masculinity, I mean, I think that like, maybe, I think like maybe... Uh, Marilyn Manson ended up being like mm. some some person I looked to in terms of constructing my identity. Um, yeah. But I mean, he's obviously not performing traditional masculinity. But I mean, I think at the time when I was a kid, like you know, there was like Antichrist Superstar, and then like kind of Animals album in terms of like sort of rock style, like having yeah. like a rocker kind of sensibility. I mean, I guess again, in terms of like on the question of style, I mean, it, which is different than like personality. I mean, I'm certainly not interested. In, Really means his personality so much <laughs> in terms of uh, style. I mean, I think that the, the way he dressed, you know, his long hair, the makeup. I mean, I was always very drawn to men. Um, he was a know, pretty so. crucial synthesis at a certain time of a lot of a lot of things that had preceded him. Obviously, right? He like re- obviously, yeah. He, yeah. he reconstituted them in a really potent, important way for people maybe of our generation. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, in, in, in terms of models of masculinity, at least in terms of like, now, and I think style is a big deal. I mean, I really, there's a book that I love called Subculture, The Meaning of Style. Do you know this book? It's by Dick Hemdidge. I don't like, know the book. Um, but I mean, what's fun about the book is he spends a lot of time talking about sort of punk uh, in Britain and glam rock and um, sort of post-punk styles and, and how they're are related to class and how they're related to, I mean, I guess he didn't really get glam rock to the extent that he sort of felt like it was a very much a, um, a more superficial thing that wasn't connected to class, which I don't think that that's, I don't think that's true. And he was there, and there's a, a long kinds of um, analysis about mod versus punk versus all these things. Um, I mean, that's, a, just, I mean, style relative to kind of music culture has always been a big deal for me. Yeah. Uh, like goth style, punk style, you know, um, glam. So mod, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much, like, down with all of it, like, in terms of, like, sort of raw subculture stuff. In terms of constructions of identity, like, I think a lot about style at the surface, but, I mean, in terms of my personality, 
Um, to me, yeah, we don't want to just talk about the surface. Uh, although it informs, I think, my, my behavior. Sure. I mean, it's all, it's all, it's all of, a, of a piece, of course. But I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking also about anything like uh, inspirations in terms of virtues, I guess. Or things like, and that doesn't mean virtues in the sense of, like, moral goodness, but I mean, like, tenets that you would hold in yourself as, uh, you know, your, your code or something like that. I mean, in terms of men, God, I mean, <laughs> that's really hard. I mean, I have men, I mean, they're, I mean like I, I'm complete um, obsessed, I'm completely, completely obsessed with Cornel West and his writing. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, and I mean, I think part of why I call myself a free black man in blues tradition is that he um, calls himself a Jesus-loving uh, free black man. I've never said that before, actually. This is the first time, mm-hmm. exclusive to this particular um Broadcast, but yeah, I think, I think the why I call myself a Negro Gothic devil worshiping free black man in the blues tradition is a sort of riffing on Cornel West, constantly sort of referring to himself as the Jesus loving free black man. So, um, yeah, I mean, Cornel West would, I guess, be like a, some, some kind of a model, um, like intellectually, right? Um, let me ask you, I'm curious because just because of that, that construction, the, the devil worshiping uh, free black man, um. Yeah. What are your thoughts or feelings about about the idea of Satan as a as a character or as a uh, personality, and 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 what what do you take from that that kind of a inspiration? I mean, I mean it's funny because this woman who sort of this black woman who's very concerned about me describing myself as a devil. I mean, black people seem to be really concerned about this, uh, and I think I, I think I want to make a distinction between Satan and the devil. I mean, that I think the devil within a blues tradition uh, is a very different thing than how how we understand like Satanism or, or the sort of satanic. Um, I think that's a really different thing. I mean, so the devil really did represent at the outset of of the blues this response to this enforced Christianity, right? Uh, this, the, the, these emancipated, these newly emancipated um, black people in the United States or the U.S. context um, were like, okay, we've been forced to, you know, get down with this Christianity thing, and so now we're going to go in the opposite direction. Uh, so for me, the devil actually just represents a certain kind of freedom uh, re- related to that history. Uh, I mean, so I, I'm not... Um, I mean, so I think that my... And, I, 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 and for me, because I... In terms of understanding my relationship to like heavy metal culture, which is you know a really big deal to me, mm. um, I see it as I see my you know my history, my lineage as like the beginnings of all that. So for me, as a you know like you know just being kind of connected to this very original um, lineage of that tradition is, is very important to me. It also scares away all the right people, um, like particularly black people actually, <laughs> about the, my devil worshiping. I mean, they seem to be the most concerned. Um, and it's, it's uh, to me, ironic because Christianity, I just think that it's, it was a tool, like during slavery, right? You had all the songs written during slavery and they weren't written, they were, they were sung and they were, it was an oral tradition that was passed on from generation to generation. Right. Um, but these songs were, um, needed to be coded in Christianity, but they were not really about God. I mean, they were, I mean, I think that, they were about these rebellions that they wanted to have happen, these dreams and fantasies of the world, the white supremacist world ending. I mean, I'm most uh, interested in the spirituals that are all about the end times. Um, right. Yeah, but then you, but then you find, I feel like, you know, I, I think a lot about, about the continuing prevalence of Christianity in, in black American culture. I mean, and I, and I feel like maybe some of that initial subversion has been a little bit distorted or, or, or lost over the years. I mean, I don't know how you feel about, like, how do you reconcile uh, 
the intense Christian, the remaining Christianity of somebody like Cornel West. I feel like there's so many great black intellectuals, black artists who you would maybe think would be uh, more intellectually uh, advanced than than staying completely within a Christian tradition. But but it's so. It's well, so I think Cornel West is more complicated than that. I mean, he's not a dogmatic Christian. Um, I mean, I think that he has a complicated relationship to Christianity. He's like, you know, he he gets that the church has been a place that's been extremely fascistic. I mean, the, the church is different than like loving Jesus and sure. his sort of like amalgamation that the, the the structures of the church have been very oppressive and homophobic and sexist and all. I mean, he gets all that stuff. Um, and so I think that. I think one can be a Christian, a revolutionary Christian. He calls himself a, re a re revolutionary Christian, and I think be very forward-thinking. Uh, and, and in a way, I'm not like I'm not anti-Christian. I'm I'm, I'm anti-close-mindedness. Um, um, you know, like people can like worship whatever God. I mean, as long as they're like open and free thinking. I mean, I think the problem is that people usually aren't free thinking uh, when they're Christian. Um, it's like what I'm interested in is people like really thinking for themselves, uh, having lots of information and, you know, and then making the choice to still do that is fine. And then I think that also if you're black in the United States, the church was uh, a place where a lot of rev revolutionary things were happening uh, right. with regards to civil rights movement, movements and abolitionist movements throughout our history in this country. I mean, so it was mostly going down in churches. And the church was also the only place uh, that could sort of attend to, I mean, certainly the blues wasn't. The blues was just attending to the, the bodily um, concerns, and, and I think the, the 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 emancipatory concerns of black people in terms of freedom, in terms of representing that kind of thing, uh, and and being an outlet for kind of sorrow, but it wasn't speaking to in a self helpy way the the spirit in terms in the way that Christianity uh, was, and I think maybe still does for some people. I don't know. I don't understand it doing that right now right. In, the, in this contemporary moment. But I think historically, Christianity has really meant a lot to Black people, and, and the church being this place to, you know, cause imagine, you know, you've been in bondage for two hundred years, you're suddenly free. I mean, in, in the modern context, you would think there need to be some self help books about like how one like understands themselves as a free person, how one psychologically and emotionally moves beyond bondage. I mean, like if you've been enslaved for two hundred years and your parents and your grandparents and your great-great-grandparents have been enslaved for 200 years, you have the mentality of a slave, you know? Um, and there needs to be some kind of, like, deep reckoning with that. And, I, and actually, I think that Christianity is not very good with that part, right. but at least it's attending to um, a kind of emotional devastation that's a part of that. Uh, and then, you know, lots of, like, um, liberation kind of stuff is happening throughout. I mean, James Cone's work in black liberation theology, I think, has been really important. He's a, he's a deep Christian, um, but black liberation theology, I think, has been very important for, like, you know, a certain kind of, like, black emancipation. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I think it's, I think it's limited. Yeah. Um, a lot of your, your, your recent stuff, so Negro Gothic is, is your record, but it's also kind of the umbrella of a lot of this multidisciplinary work. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was in, the first time I used the term was in 2010 mm -hmm. and it was for tape that it was put out by this little uh, label called Whip Records. And it was just like these live performances I, I, recorded um, the tape uh, and it's not like in print anymore but then I was doing this exhibition last year uh, this gallery called Participant Inc here in New York and um, it seemed like that was like I kind of wanted to um, talk about I mean the, the whole title of the show was Negro Gothic the uh, Negro Gothic Manifesto the Aesthetics of M. Lamar um, I wanted to just sort of like codify like really just go deep into it as a 
as a as a whole thing, uh, as a kind of a philosophy, as an aesthetic, as a a way of life, <laughs> maybe even uh, a way of understanding oneself in imperialist white supremacist capitalist patriarchy uh, that that one a particular kind of Negro could understand oneself. Um, can you can you talk? I'm curious, to, I'm curious to ask you. I know you've talked about this a little bit elsewhere, but. Um, a lot of the imagery related to this body of work has kind of conflates aspects of uh, American slavery imagery and BDSM kind of imagery, right? And, you know, you have this series of Maplethorpe photos and stuff. So can you just talk a little bit about your connection of those two ideas or those two aesthetics and and what what your thinking is? And I think that... um... I mean, the way that people, I think, often use BDSM stuff is just to work through a lot of issues. I mean, and not necessarily to work through them in like a I want to be better therapeutic way, but just like express you got them. some kind of express them. Yeah, express them. And I think that, um, but I think that you could also use it as a way of like acting out certain things, acting out certain scenes. And so, I mean, the kind of that's so BDSM in a way has been a model for me in terms of the videos I make or the films that I make uh, in terms of constructing certain kinds of racialized scenes uh, that are about bondage, that are about uh, sort of submission. Um, but, you know, never really with the black person involved being in a submissive um, position. Now, I know that actually, I mean, people who have, white people who have fantasies about um, sex with black men um, usually imagine uh, themselves as the slave and the black man as this all um uh, powerful being. Um, I mean, that the, I think the construction of black masculinity in the white imagination is very much uh, that uh, black men are these kind of epic um, pillars of masculinity and that like right, any yeah, white right. masculinity would be, you know, subpar uh, in comparison. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. One of our, our guests a few weeks ago uh, was, was talking about how he's, he's a gay black man. He was talking about how in you know, a I'm not, kind of, for the record, I'm not a gay black man. Absolutely, I'm a no black man. I'm not a this, gay. This gentleman is, and in his, <laughs> but he was talking about how, uh, uh, you know, at a certain period of his life, in a in a pretty white liberal gay scene, he felt very much like just purely a like a phallus, you know, and even even outside of even outside of um, of. Uh, Gay culture, you know, in, in in straight culture, there's a whole weird history in the states of of white heterosexual couples, like white men cuckolding themselves, right? Like Eldridge Cleaver writes about in in Solanus oh, yeah. and stuff. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. These white uh, no. couples bringing in black men to like fuck their wives in front of them, and so there's yeah, there's obviously a lot of a lot of odd history in that in that vein. Well, I mean, it's not, I mean, like, again, if you go back to the plantation and imagine, you know, uh, what must have been going on, I mean, I imagine plantations as a kind of Saudian, like, you know, sort of fantasy, uh, like a solo kind of situation. Right. Um, uh, I just think that, you know, if you own people, if you own, just think of, I mean, if you're, you know. It's hard not to make them sex objects if you're making them objects in every other way, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, we know. I mean, we certainly know the, the rape of black women is pretty well documented. I mean, it can't be talked about enough, but it's pretty well documented. And then we also have all these like interracial babies that are res- the result of uh, the rape of black women. Um, but the what must be going on between white men and black men on plantations is let it really there's no research at all. I mean, there's the, the Vincent Word's new book uh, called The Delectable Negro is really it comes the closest on uh, sort of getting into this kind of research. But it's mostly speculative, and that's one of the things I'm trying to do in my work is to sort of get to this thing of like what is going on in the in the, in the imagination of white men uh, relative to black men. I mean, because I, I I've been saying for like at least two or three years that the flip side of all these police um, assassinations of black men, uh, viewing them as these like you know sort of violent threat is the big black cock. I mean, it, it's like this obsession with black men being so masculine and so much more manly. And it's a construction, I think, of the white supremacist imagination, mm-hmm. that idea. Uh, seems to be the flip side of this, like, you know, we want to fetishize you. And I mean, because when white white men typically in a, in a fetishistic way or an anonymous way or in phone sex lines, I mean, if you want to do this kind of research, you should just call a phone sex line and sort of like represent yourself as a black man with a huge cock and then just see what kinds of messages you get from white men like they're they, they say to you i want to be your slave i mean you're just like you were the alpha you are you know the real man and i'm just so inadequate right. uh, i mean i just i don't understand really i understand that fantasy in as much as you know i understand the history of white supremacy in the united states and how um that had, black men had to be constructed that way to sort of in, within white supremacy to, to sort of justify the lynching of black men if they were looking at a white woman, right? Or if they were see, caught with a white, you know, white woman in some way that 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 sort of that they're more sex and more body than mind. Black women too. I mean, that the whole construction of black women being more body than mind, more, these like sort of like it's also hot a way to it's like, also a way to kind of somewhat dehumanize them and right and saying that they're like these animalistic bestial creatures of the body or whatever as opposed to like people of the higher mind and that kind of thing yeah yeah i'm exactly more body than mind yeah it's not yeah it's absolutely about dehumanization and to keep and to keep the 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 order of white supremacy in place uh i mean that's part of the maintenance of white supremacy i mean i think that the what's going on in the porn industry which is you know basically i mean there are very few women producing there's some women producing porn um, there's some people of color but it's mostly white men producing um you know this billion billions and billions of dollars a year um industry globally uh and they're just sort of reinforcing all of this kind of white supremacy at all times um through pornography and i think that that i mean when darren wilson said he's the um police officer who shot mike brown in ferguson when he said he was like a demon coming at me so i had to continue to shoot him right. even after i shot him like Ten times, I right. needed to keep going because he was super, somehow superhuman, right. and was I mean this like that kind of construction of blackness is in the white imagination is just it's it's just like sort of psychosis. Uh, my friend, as, if, as if Mike Brown was Batman or something like that. Yeah, I mean he he, he also said I felt like Hulk Hogan grabbing onto his arm, like I, I felt like a, a five year old grabbing onto Hulk Hogan's arm, and the dudes only they're the same height. He's like maybe forty pounds heavier. Like how do you what are you going through? I mean that, that is like I mean psychologically and emotionally that is like some real fucked up shit, some real psychosis, some real kind of insanity really and it's about a certain kind of maintenance of white supremacy um at all times i mean i i I play with it but i like to think that i'm like deconstructing it and not just sort of maintaining it in my particular kinds of scenarios um this is this is a somewhat lighter topic but um 
but uh, it's an interesting situation and I think kind of a unique situation. So you, I actually haven't seen the show, I apologize, or I haven't seen all of it, but you, you portrayed your sister prior to her transition uh, on Orange is the New Black, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's factually correct, yeah. Factually correct. Okay. Yeah. So I just so I just wanted to hear your your thoughts or what your experience was like uh, in that portrayal because I I don't know that I mean presumably going forward in the future we might have more scenarios like this but I feel like at this time in history that's a fairly unique specific circumstance right to be playing your sister. Yeah, my ex sibling. Um, the only reason why. Um, I even really know about the stuff she's doing, you know, with that show is because, you know, she's on it and, and I had to, you know, be on it. I mean, I'm not, that show, I mean, people inevitably, you know, gonna, I just always ask me about it and I just, I'm not, I have no interest in that show. Like, I'm not interested in um, the ways in which they write prison narratives. I mean, I don't understand prison to ever be funny or... Right. No, 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 no. I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really asking um, you about that show. I'm just interested yeah. in your, what your thought process or emotional process was like in portraying your sister prior to her... Well, I mean, I think it's really important to, um, I think that I had no... I never had a thought of portraying my sister in a pre-transitional place because we, I wasn't portraying my sister. I was portraying a character right. uh, written by a white woman, uh, a fictional character written by a white woman. Um, and so I just, I mean, my job was to sort of like, you know, be a butch firefighter or a butch husband. I mean, I've, I've done sort of two different episodes. One where I was like, you know, the sort of supportive butch uh, husband while my wife was pregnant. And the other was, I, I was this like firefighting guy who was, working through my trans issues or something. I mean, but that was not, uh, I mean, intimately knowing my sister, obviously, I mean, that had nothing to do, that story had nothing to do with her life, right. uh, her particular transition or her particular kinds of realities as a trans person. Um, I mean, the, the I think that the culture is really invested uh, in this binary. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that bothers me deeply about um, having, I mean, I did it for the money. I mean, because it's, I should say that my sister's been doing, like, independent film, like, theater, like, for years, you know? Sure. And, um, and she was like, oh, there's this new Netflix show that I'm doing, and, and blah, blah, blah. I really didn't think it was going to be this popular. I really had... I, if I'd known, I probably wouldn't have done it. Mm -hmm. But the money was really good as an avant-garde underground artist. Sure. I mean, someone's, <laughs> you know, offering you thousands of dollars to do, you know, a thing that really, like, took three days. I mean, like, it was... I mean, it was one day of shooting, and then, like... I had to go in for, like, fittings, you know, like, uh -huh. and I was paid for the fittings. I mean, like, you know, in underground circles, you don't get paid to go in and try on clothes, you know? Oh. Um, like, a sag weight, you know? So I was really <laughs> just like, like, this is really, it's kind of like, I mean, because she asked me about it, because she was like, oh, they're all these, they're bringing all these, like, really people who don't look like me and are really butch or whatever, it just doesn't seem to make any sense, and, and would you be interested in doing it? Because she knows, like, I hate mainstream bullshit. Uh, and I said, well, how much does it pay? Mm -hmm was my first question. Uh, I mean, I really, and I think that I wouldn't have done it if I'd known that it would be as popular as this because I, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that follows me that I don't really want to have any association with, um, honestly. Like, I really don't like the show. I don't like mainstream culture. I mean, I, part of my uh, descriptions of myself as a devil 
worshiping free black men in the blues tradition is also just to be sort of repellent for mainstream, like Beyonce listening on humans. Mm -hmm. uh, like, I just don't want that in my life, you know? Like, I just don't want that element, like, sort of following me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, because they can't, I mean, you know, like, my sister's fans are kind of, like, trying to get into my shit, um, or get to her through me or something, and I just, I think that right. um, I want to yeah. do whatever I can to repel uh, that energy. Um, you know, I'm very happy for my sister. I mean, it's, you oh, know, sure. clearly she's, you know, making lots of money, you know, like, in, it's it's her trip. Her trip is a very corporate uh, trip. Um, like, I'm just, I, yeah, I have no interest in, like, you know, repping really, um, like, this white woman who sort of refuses to hire any black writers uh, for a show that's predominantly black women. Um, I mean, again, but, you know, I, I, I did it for the money. Yeah. Uh, and I've, you know, people, they, people work at Starbucks, you know, it's not like they're, like, wanting to be defined by working at Starbucks, but, you know, they're, they're like, be <laughs> a job. Yeah, I mean, again, um, again like I, guess I, was just, I was just curious about if if there was any kind of an intense or unusual uh, experience in portraying your twin who is now female. That's all. But but yeah, the, I mean, I, I guess you're it's, saying it's, that, it's, that the scenario was so fictionalized that you didn't necessarily have such a deep relationship to it, right? Well, I mean, yeah, I always. I didn't have a, yeah, no, I've, I've acted before. I think it's something that comes very easily for me. And so it was just really easy too. Like it was just easy. Mm -hmm. um, like it was kind of like, I mean, like my work is actually hard. I mean, my work is hard because I'm writing, producing, I'm playing piano, I'm singing, I train endlessly vocally. I do lots of research. Like I also, uh, you know, making the whole production happen myself, you know, like I don't have like a team of people and I have a few people that, you know, helping me do things, but, um, like having like someone who's doing my uh, makeup, someone who's doing my hair, someone who's doing like wardrobe, like having them in between takes come and check things, you know, like I shoot film, I'm working on a feature film myself. I don't have anyone coming to check my makeup in between shoots or my outfit to make sure that it's in the right place. I mean, like film and television are actually really, I mean, I, I don't mean to degrade anyone who's doing it, but like, if you, I mean, if you have any reasonable amount of talent, like to act, it's like so easy. It's like a, it's, it's really a pretty luxuriant to, situation to be a screen. Yeah, actor, it's yeah. like I mean, so I mean, that experience was like I was like, wow, like this is like not how it is making my work. Like you know, I was just on set for my own um, film shoot, like you know, a few days earlier, and you know, there was like not, I was like I had to do everything myself. Like I was setting up lights, you know, like and being in the shot. I was in the shot and setting up light, you know, like insane. So I mean, I you know. Yeah, I just, you know, it's sort of like a silly thing. And I also don't think it's that interesting that I'm a twin either. I mean, like, I, the great thing about having me living in San Francisco and going to college there, my sister went to college on the East Coast, is that, like, you know, there were many people who didn't, and I, would, I didn't talk about the fact that I had a twin mm -hmm. uh, sister, so it wasn't, like, a thing that I, um, that people knew about me. And I always say it's the least interesting thing about me. I think that everything else is so much more interesting, but the culture seems to have a fascination with, like, the twin phenomena for some reason. And then we're both, like, you know, queer in some way. Uh, I mean, I guess, like, sociologically, it's probably interesting, but um, I, I think it's, like, again, the least interesting thing about me. Mm -hmm. um, but Well, and then I think pop culture is never, ever, ever going to be interested in what I do and in the work that I do because it's not for them. And so I think that in, in some people's minds, I will only always be um, Laverne Cox's twin brother, which is fine. I mean, it's, like, totally—I mean, I, I, I'm not interested in being anything to— 
those pe people who care about the things that those people care about. I was never interested in being anything to them at all. Uh, and so I guess it's, in some ways, it's, it's disturbing and troubling to me that I'm something, you know, to them, uh, even <laughs> if, if it's, like, something that minute, because I just would rather them not sort of, like, think of me as existing in any way. Right. Um, and then there's all these kinds of crazy projections, because my sister's on a really particular kind of corporate mainstreaming, respectability, kind of, like, political, cultural, social trip. And so I think that people you know, kind of maybe come projecting that shit on me, and it's like, that really doesn't apply to me. But I think that, I, I think I've made a pretty clear uh, distinction between, um, you know, this very corporate, very, like, kind of, like, milquetoast product versus, um, you know, what I do. Um, and, I mean, that's no shade on my sister. I mean, I, you know, talk sure, to her. Sure, sure, and, yeah, and she knows what she is. Uh, she's really smart. She knows she's corporate core. Um, and, um, I mean, you know, there benefits to being a corporate whore, like, you know, money. <laughs> I have no money. Yeah. But I'm very people, thrilled to be doing it. People need money. Um, Some people need money. Well, I'm Lamar, you were, you, were, uh, you were more than your sister's twin to us. Don't worry. Fear not. Um, so, I think... Well, the right people will know me. Yeah, the right yes, people will know me. sure. Um, I think that it may be time for us to... Uh, do this segment, The Race of Man, if you are prepared. I'm prepared for anything at all times. Wonderful. Uh, wow. Can you do a backflip? Um, yes, I can. Okay, cool. Well, this is an audio program, so there's really no, there's really no, there's really no way, actually, you're, you're totally doing it. Okay, so uh, the list is a deeply subjective um, ranking of all men throughout all time. That's what we're dealing with. Got it. From best um, from best to worst. So, um, and you know, different people can approach this list with very different criteria. So, for example, yeah. Zach has uh, has discussed his intentions uh, with the list, the race of man list, being very much to further his own deeply misandrist, uh, man-hating, uh, you know, disgust with masculinity. Whereas I may have a different relationship to masculinity, you may have a different relationship, Any of, anybody else may have a different relationship. Of course, of course, of course. So it's, it's all subjective. But right now, that's our list, the one I sent you. Number one, Yukio Mishima, and, and so on, all the way down. So... Yeah. Uh, yeah, so each of the three of us will submit one real-life man, living or dead, and then we will all discuss and uh, place them on this list in a efficient and timely fashion. Got it. Okay. Um, am, oh, am I starting? Uh, we, I would welcome you to start as our as our guest. Yeah. Okay. Because okay. Um, I, I see, for me, Cecil Taylor is um, a towering figure in um, the lexicon of. of, of of American music, um, I think that it's it's um, we understand him as a free jazz pioneer mm -hmm. uh, in the way that we think of Ornette Coleman uh, or later uh, John Coltrane. Um, but to me, in the way that we think of Ornette Coleman as a philosopher, I think that Cecil is a philosopher, and he had has Cecil is in fact still alive. He has a sense of style, a sense of um, of. Um, of grace, of the absurd, of the magnificent, um, just in the way that he sort of talks in interviews, the way he carries himself. Mm -hmm. um, he is, um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think he's like one of the most important figures in in, in, in in what I understand in the black music tradition as a kind of a black existentialism, which I think is like a deep black existentialism. Where I really think had its sort of height, uh, its high point. You know, and this we're talking about a combination of all these blues performers. We're talking about like Ben Smith, Billie Holiday, uh-huh. um, Robert Johnson. I mean, all, from those people to Mahalia Jackson to. Um, Mary Williams in the gospel ilk, or even popular people like, you know, early like Tina Turner, or Ike Turner, or James Brown, and those people. I mean, Cecil is, in terms of a certain kind of, like, black existentialism, I think he is um, one of the most profound people we have. I mean, now, some people would argue that John Coltrane would be at the height of, of what this black existentialism is, but I, I just think there's a certain kind of dexterity, a certain kind of I mean, I guess on one. Okay, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit. I mean, <laughs> when, you think, when, you think, when you think about John Coltrane in the air, like cause I'm, I'm a singer, and it's all about the air, the, the exhalation of air, and um, and blowing the air that he's blowing into the into the horn, um, it's pretty significant relative to putting it in the service of things like Love Supreme or Little Steps or these right, like John, great... John Coltrane has more of a relationship to the idea of like divinity, right? And Cecil maybe has more of a uh, just like the human mind heated up to its most transcendent, right? I th- I mean, I think that's a f- that's fair, but there's something about the physicality I mean, of, like, watching, if you just watch one of those videos of Cecil playing. Um, yeah, and, I mean, and- Cecil also, yeah, there's a lot more maybe violence and, and, and a different kind of intensity than there is in Coltrane. And, and also, obviously, he lived a lot longer, so we have a lot longer of an arc to observe, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and he, I think his later stuff is actually, I mean, from, like, 1980, well, like, 79 on is, like, his most interesting stuff, when he was mostly just performing as a solo, as a soloist. Like, I don't, I'm not as interested in his stuff when he's working with bands in the, in the you know, sort of ensemble context. I yeah, think I was, it's really about him as a solo improviser. Yeah, I was thinking um, about that, too. He does, I think he does have, he does have more of an identity as a solo musician than somebody like Coltrane or, or, or Nett, who are so defined by the music they created with, with groups of people, with specific, consistent groups of people. So Cecil Taylor, um, he's, also, he's also a queer man. He's also, yeah, he's very queer. I mean, but he, what's fantastic about his queerness is that it, it's embodied in such a kind of philosophical kind of um, a thing about style, a thing about, he's not... I mean, he's not one of those milquetoast like faggots that we like see in like mainstream culture, like uh, Anderson Cooper or, <laughs> sure. um, well, yeah, that's what I was or like say. that I guy, like... that guy, Doogie Hauser guy, that awful sure. Neil Patrick Harris. I mean, sure. he's like horrible milquetoast, like no, bourgeois, like you know, a baby adopting homosexuals. Uh, I mean, that there's like, I mean, I see Cecil in the, in the great pantheon of, of like radical like like homosexuals, like uh, Pasolini or William Burroughs or Oscar Wilde. Right. Or, I was gonna say um, that. Yeah, he's he's queer in this in this kind of that that in exactly in that tradition that wilding kind of tradition where it's not just his sexuality it's about uh an outside of the normal constructs of mainstream life right he's like well and about a certain a, a, an ultimate kind of freedom i mean whenever i think of cecil taylor i just think of like the greatest like levels of freedom that i could ever imagine I mean, like to me he's the most free person i've ever witnessed um i mean given i mean given the history of black people in the united states given what we've you know sort of endured yeah. um as a people that he can you know sort of emerge as this fully formed completely free being yeah he's a very Uh, self-possessed fully realized guy 
And, yeah, from, I and mean, from every anecdote that I've ever heard, any of my friends that have hung out with Cecil still does a tremendous amount of coke at his age, and he's like 90, yes. right? He's like 91. Yeah. And he's I think like, he's like, like pounding s- drugs. 78, yeah, yeah. But he's, he's seriously doing drugs, yeah. He's seriously doing drugs, seriously going to those young boys. Sure. <laughs> like, he's like, I know these boys who are, you know, very young that he's, you know, just made... You know, passes that anyway i love that negro that negro is just like okay so cecil taylor i love cecil taylor i adore i adore the man and his music and his hard partying uh, octogenarian ways in brooklyn yes yes, yes um yes. so let's let's figure this out and you have the list i do where where do we want to put where would you ideally like to put cecil taylor and then we'll and then we'll all come to an accord I think he should be number one. I mean, <laughs> of, of, of this list that I'm looking at, I mean, I would uh, Cecil Taylor would be number one. Yeah, I just I would just have a different list, and it wouldn't be. It would probably be no white people on the list. Like sure. I, I have no interest in, in John Lennon, absolutely sure. none. Bernie Sanders is of the moment. It, he's interesting, but I don't. I mean, in some grand existential way, you know, whatever. Well, again, John again, Cage. List, it's a living I organism. Mean, you know, people add. You know, people come in, they put in people. We have no control over it. So no, no, no. I understand. I understand. I'm just saying. I I would want. Uh, I would want someone on the list. I would want. Um, I would want Screaming Jay Hawkins. I mean, these are just for my, for me. Well, we uh, have, so, well, yeah, so, I mean, I want Screaming Jay on the list. But we, we, you know, it's one week at a time. So if you come back on. In yeah, yeah, I can, I can add to the list. So please, Cecil <laughs> Taylor would be absolutely please, number one. Cecil would be number one and Little Richard would be number two. Right. Kobe Bryant would be number three. I'm sorry, I don't mean to privilege only black people. Quite all right. Okay. So you you would gun for Cecil at number one, above, number above one. Mishima, above everybody. Above everybody, yeah. Everybody. Zach, what do you think? I feel like he needs <laughs> he needs to be well ranked for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would maybe put him. I would duke it out a little bit with Little Richard, maybe maybe the three spot or the four spot. What are you thinking, Sam? Um, I I think Cecil's top three. Yeah, I think Cecil's going. Somewhere one, one, two, or three, right up there. What, what's your argument? I mean, so would you these people who are number one, number two, number three now? I mean, yes. like Marlon Brando. I mean, you have an argument as to why like Mishima or Marlon Brando should be number one or two. Is there, I just want to hear that argument. <laughs> uh, okay. I mean, I would say the criteria generally has been uh, men who are extremely self-actualized, self-realized. Uh, and in some cases, possessing or explain, like displaying um, some quali- some of the more monstrous and extreme eccentric qualities associated with traditional masculinity. Yeah, I can see it um, going high. <laughs> I think we're all agreed he's going to be high on this list. The question is, how high? I say number one. Okay, so. What are we gonna do, Cecil? Where are we gonna go? I could, I, I could, I could. I love Cecil. <clears throat> he's a, he's a, a bold choice. I could imagine Cecil maybe, maybe number two. Mm-hmm. Maybe number two with, after Mishima before Brando. I mean that number one or two would just serve some real vision. I mean, you know, like Cecil Taylor's Cecil Taylor's place. I mean, he's a great, great thinker as well as. 
uh, a great, 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 great musician and innovator, and um, and just I think epitomizes a kind of a kind of black modernity, a, the, a high point in black modernity and in black existentialism. Um, I can I can totally absolutely dig Cecil at number two. What do you think, Seth? I think you really made your case. All right, so that's that's it. We're doing it. We're going in. Cecil Taylor, okay. Okay. second second greatest man of all time at this point. I love it. Okay. I love it. I love it. Uh, I am going to enter onto the list another uh, black musician. Mm-hmm. Somebody we we just celebrated a an anniversary of his first solo release, and that is uh, the man born Robert Diggs, the RZA. Mm-hmm. The RZA. The RZA, who's one of my biggest uh, musical art kind of heroes. A really incredibly, also a very. Uh, intensely self-realized guy again not a lot of advantages in life but was able to completely create his own industry and empire out of pure creativity and willpower and and Mm -hmm. and friendship um and also just a total crazy person i mean an artistic genius but also just a total like manic lunatic you know like Yeah, yeah the thing i always really think about a lot with him is you know the whole construction of the bobby digital persona was like this superhero persona and and my understanding is when he first was doing it i think this is around the time period when the whole wu-tang was uh lacing their weed with angel dust so smoking a lot of angel dust but i think his intention was he made this costume and he was gonna go out and patrol because you know he he was like studied martial arts and stuff he wanted to actually go out and be a crime fighter on the streets Mm. in his bobby digital costume i don't think he ever quite got to that point but but that was his intention and and and, you know i I got to interview him many years ago and and talk to him um about some of this stuff and he was talking about how the creation of bobby digital was that you know his his persona his character within the wu-tang clan was that he was the like wise man he was like the he was the abbot he was the Mm. Uh, sage kind of father figure you know like the architect and that at one point like 97 98 somewhere like that uh he was in las vegas and just like completely insane drunk grabbing people's asses running around jumping on tables naked whatever and that raekwon was like yo you can't you can't act like that because you're you know you're the abbot you're the rizza and so that he had he intentionally created this whole this other persona bobby digital that was like all of his id and all of his go you know um so that's you know that's another thing we've talked about a bit on this list is people that can so intensely compartmentalize and create these other personas like we're talking about kobe you know he created the black mamba to be his Mm -hmm. basketball playing persona because he needed to completely separate his human personality so i find that kind of construction always really awesome and fascinating so the rizza <laughs> the rizza yeah we all know the rizza right oh yeah oh yeah so i of course being such a uh you know enormous uh fan of the rizza of the wu-tang clan and of what he was able to accomplish and of his extreme eccentricity and and you know his extreme uh unique you know what he was able to create i mean he also you know was this kind of intense interesting businessman in that you know when the wu-tang clan started they they put out the first record and then he signed all of the he signed all of the members to different labels for their solo deals so that it would be 
they wouldn't be beholden to any company, that the Wu-Tang Clan itself was like this over, this umbrella above all of these record deals, you know? So he's in a very interesting kind of brilliant man. So I, of course, am going to be inclined to put the RZA pretty high on this list, but I'm, I'm happy to hear where the two of you guys uh, would, would be inclined to place him. Um, I, I mean, to me, I, I think I think the Wu-Tang Clan as a collective is um, one of the most important, extraordinary hip-hop moments that, um, that we've had. Um, incredibly influential. But, I mean, for me, he would, yeah, I mean, he wouldn't be near the top. I mean, he just doesn't, I mean, in terms of hip-hop, yeah, he doesn't. I mean, he would they, he would rank high, really high, but not not in terms of hip hop exclusively, but not that high for me. It's not it's not that moving for me. I, I really don't actually have much to say about it. Honestly, mm -hmm. I don't that... really have an opinion one way or the other. Yeah, it's funny looking at this list. I see him as kind of uh, of an accord with uh, Mr. Cage as like a broad thinker in, mm -hmm. in his music making. Right. Uh, uh, in sort of reinventing the landscape of a kind of music mm -hmm. uh, in in a way. But it, again, it's hard because I, you know, there's some, the, the ranking is so subjective. But <laughs> I would maybe put him in the, in the uh, seven range. And that feels, that feels a little low, but this list is getting I, pretty I dense. mean, I was thinking that like something like 10 uh, you know was my actual thought I was like well like maybe he's like number 10 wow. 11 I mean how many people can be on this I mean I just it's not that it's not that deep to me yeah I mean it's deep but it's not that deep you know like it's not <laughs> you know I mean we were talking about like Mishima or or Cecil Taylor or Little Rich. I mean to me that it's just it's just not anywhere near that um in my opinion right um, I mean for me it's for me it's pretty deep part of what I think is so amazing so deep I guess about the Wu-Tang Clan is you know they're they they are dudes from the most you know truly brutal crime-ridden poverty in the United States they were they were so uh you know they have such an intense flamboyance in their own way and they basically embraced these like super heroic identities and actualized that in a way that very few other popular musicians have maybe somebody like little richard and so you know some people but like there there's a there's an ambition and a success in achieving that ambition that i find very admirable in the wu-tang clan and i'm not just talking about ambition in terms of popularity or financial success but in terms of just grandiosity they're just like these really grandiose, cosmic, comic book kind of personas that they embodied and, and for me at least, created music that was, you know, avant-garde and, and embraced that energy in a way that was really powerful. So, you know, to each their own. <laughs> tomato, yeah. tomato. But I could dig putting... Now I feel like Christopher Lee is way too high on this, this I list. I agree. But I could dig putting... I mean, we could always amend it. I would, dig, I would dig putting RZA somewhere around Kobe, like just above Kobe or just or between Kobe and John Cage, maybe. I mean, if this were the Sam Mickens list, he may very well be number one. Mm -hmm. But we're all... We're, we're building this thing together, so... Yeah, so... Um... 
I yeah, I mean, I'm still in the ten to eleven. <laughs> you think range. he's? You um, think he's just? You'd say he's just below John Lennon and Bernie Sanders for you. I mean, I have no love or interest for John Lennon at all. <laughs> Bernie Sanders is. I mean, if, if I if I voted, yeah, um, I would vote for Bernie Sanders if I were. I mean. That's uh, still a very low bar uh, in terms of politicians. Right. Uh, so, I, no, I think he would definitely be above, he would be above Bernie Sanders. John Lennon, though I hate John Lennon, I can't deny his influence on um, on sort of popular culture, even like sort of emerging subcultures. Sure. So, um, I don't think that um, RZA, even for black people, well, I don't know. Yeah, I put him above John Lennon, too. Yeah, I have no love for... And then what is... I don't... L. Ron Hubbard, I mean, I don't know whose idea that was. Um, <laughs> All right, well, here's here's my proposal. Here's my proposal. This is already a deeply compromised proposal because, again, for me, the RZA is very close to the top, if not at the top. Yeah. I propose putting RZA between Kobe and John Cage. How do we feel about that as a group? Um... I could live with that. I'll remind you, Em, that we are increasingly loading the top half of the list with black people. So <laughs> there you go. So 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 Riz is just that's make me happy. Um, uh, you know. Yeah, I'm just making a different black person. I'm just I'm not an indiscriminate lover of black people. Of uh, I have standards, and I'm not saying. I mean, I love. I have love, deep love for the Riz. I mean, I'm not <laughs> anyway um, suggesting yeah. that I don't. It's just not. It's not anywhere near the love I have for like you know all kinds of people. Beforehand. Okay. Well, as um, as if if we if we this set this proposal, if we if we pass this accord, Rizzo will still be below Little Richard and Kobe Bryant. True, that's true. That's helpful, at least. Um, so yeah, sure. Why not? Okay. Um, All right. That's what we're. That's where we're going. I appreciate I appreciate uh, the spirit of goodwill that allows us all to make these placements become reality. Well, politics is, in fact, the art of compromise, which is, I think, why I despise the idea of politics, but yes. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the com some of the compromises we've made on this list are very painful, and yet we continue <laughs> marching forward. So, I mean, okay. but what other people can we go for? You know, there's no other model, really. Okay, so we have, we got the RZA, we have Cecil, uh, it, right there at number two, after Mishima, we have the RZA between Kobe and John Cage. Mm-hmm. Zach, who who are you adding to the race of man? Well, strangely, the person I have I'm adding this week is of a, of an accord <laughs> in my mind with the with some of the people we've with the other two people we've added this week. Mm. Uh, in that uh, he is a um, exemplary figure of male blackness mm. uh, and came from similarly. Uh, it's not Kevin Hart, is it? It's not Kevin Hart, okay. uh, but. Also came from uh, came from uh, abject poverty and a and had a, a background that um, is very biographically troubling. Um, mm. I'm my proposal <laughs> is that I'm adding uh, Richard Pryor to the list mm. of the race of man. Mm. I think that's a fabulous choice. Mm -hmm. Richard Pryor is one of the great, 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 great comic, if not the great comic genius of um, uh, the the U.S. has produced. I mean, like truly, it's um, arguable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think my, some of my some of some of my points uh, my plot points for Richard Pryor was raised in a brothel. Yeah, was married seven times, twice to the same woman. 
famously set himself on fire yeah. uh, in a suicide attempt and ran through the streets of Los Angeles. There are conflicting mm-hmm. reports. He, re- <laughs> he, is, he admitted before he died that he tried yeah. to kill himself, but yeah, yeah he... Covered himself like in just alcohol. I just thought he was like basing cocaine, though, and it just like and it got exploded. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of my favorite. I read a really amazing article about. I'm, I'll, I'm sorry, Zach. I'll no, let you go continue, ahead. But I read a great article about him in recovery after he set himself on fire. That was like just the most horrific, brutal thing I've ever read about. Like. They had to come in and like scrub off a bunch of the skin every day, and he was screaming. And it was like Jim Brown, I guess, kind of like nursed him to health, which is really fascinating. You know, Jim Brown. Yeah. Jim oh, Brown yeah. was like at his bedside and would like carry him to the bathroom and stuff. It was like real sounds really tender and intense and weird. But uh, anyway, Richard Pryor. So wait a second. Did you guys decide to like add all these black men because you were talking to a black man on your show today? Because I mean, before I was on the show, you had Little Richard and you have Kobe Bryant, and then that's the blackness, and then suddenly the ratio of blackness. And I'm not complaining well, about it. I'm just I'll, like I'll, I'll, I'll remind you that you, in fact, added Cecil Taylor. Well, that's but I, I I added the RZA because it. We just celebrated the 17th anniversary of the release of uh, Bobby Digital, but I can't speak for Zach. The reason that I added Richard Pryor is that uh, today, as we record, uh, is Richard Pryor's 75th birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Wow. So, wow. weirdly coincidental. <laughs> there you go. But oh, very so clearly... Okay, I, I'll buy it that you're not just sort of going through some white liberal guilt thing. I, I buy it. <laughs> nothing, I buy could it. Be, nothing could be further from the truth. Of course not. Um, Okay, so Richard Pryor. I so at what point should Richard? Wow, where would we place Richard? Um, what do you, Zach? He's your pick. Where 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 are you gunning to put Richard? Oh God. Uh, well, I'll remind you, he's not very attractive. I wouldn't say that he's unattractive. I'm not saying he's unattractive, but he's uh, he's no uh, Kobe Bryant. He's, He's no M. Lamar. He's no M. Lamar. (laughs) No M. Lamar. Uh, Well, in terms of, like, fully self-actualized men, I I mean, the other thing that I was going to mention about Richard Pryor, which I find really fascinating about him, is how during his ascension in the 70s in Hollywood, he basically set up, like, he's basically made it so that his productions were predominantly black men and women because Mm -hmm. he despised the Hollywood system Mm -hmm. and it's like sort of white patriarchal, uh, confines Uh anyway. So I feel like he is of like super, in terms of our self-actualization aspect to, to, to our list of race of man, I feel like he's gotta be, he's gotta be above Sir Christopher Lee. Also in the, also in the monstrous appetites. Yes. Also in the monstrous appetites. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, I think we could move Christopher Lee down. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, so where do you think Richard's prior should be, Zach? I feel what? like, gosh, I feel like he is battling for me. I, I would see maybe him between Brando and Little Richard, maybe. I would say top five for me. What would you think, Sam? I'm going to make a proposal. Yeah. My proposal is this. Sir Christopher Lee, <laughs> former, uh, you know, British spy, Nazi killer, Count mm-hmm. Dooku, etc., Dracula, movies Dracula. My proposal is Christopher Lee, God love him, yeah. 
we move down to just below John Cage. Mm -hmm. And that Richard Pryor is our new number four. This week has become a racial upset. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's a, yeah, it's a veritable Nat Turner kind of. Well, I would love to imagine in my, you know, uh, grandiosity that um, I would have something to do with that in terms of sh shifting uh, sort of perspective a little bit. You um, should absolutely imagine that. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, um, what do you guys think? You I, do, I you think that's do that? I love it. Okay. Yeah, yeah we're doing it. So, so, here's our new list. You guys ready? Race of Man, from top to bottom. Number mm -hmm. one, Yukio Mishima. Number two, Cecil Taylor. Yay! On 88, 88 drums. <laughs> Number three, Marlon Brando. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Little Richard Penniman. Richard Pryor. The Black Mamba, Kobe Bryant. Mm. The RZA, also known as Bobby Digital. The Abbott, the RZA Rector. Then John Cage, mm -hmm. Sir Christopher Lee, former President Abraham Lincoln, L. Ron Hubbard, John Lennon, Bernie Sanders, Andy Kaufman, George Clooney, and Trent Reznor, staying, staying in at the bottom. Who was Trent Re whose idea was Trent Reznor? Uh, I I I uh, entered him a few weeks ago, gunning for the bottom spot, and I have so far achieved and maintained it with Trent Reznor. Yeah, well, that's there you go. There you uh, go. There you go. Very subjective list. Um, <laughs> very, very generational too. I mean, I think that like. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it just speaks of a certain... I mean, Trent Reznor is like a very specific kind of phenomena. Um, well, again, there's a million people that I'd like to have on this list. Yeah. But it's 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 only one... It's one man at a time. There's yeah. one foot in front of the other. So. <laughs> if so, only I had that attitude with my sex life. Um, yeah. It's fortunately never necessarily one man at a time. I think that's a great line to end on. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, M. Lamar, thank you. This was fun. Negro, Negro Gothic is uh, is on iTunes and elsewhere now, correct? Anything else you'd like to draw people's attention to? Yeah, Negro Gothic, um, the Negro Gothic collection is on um, you know Amazon and iTunes. And you can get my um, other back catalog at mlamar.com. You can also get other updates about performances that I have coming up. I'm doing this collaboration with Charlie Looker and the Amigos Quartet that's happening at Merkin Hall on March 19th, 2016. Okay. You should um, get your tickets. Tickets went on sale today. Day, actually for that performance and I'm very excited about that I'm also doing a big show in LA uh, in April uh, at the One Archive and Exhibition and the performance okay, and well, then, we live in LA you know yeah yeah no exactly so um, all kinds of great things are coming up in LA and um, New York uh, and then I'm going to Europe to play uh, in, in Copenhagen at this festival um, in, at the end of April yeah so um, look for all those things that I'm doing and uh, just check out for Imlamar updates go to imlamar.com excellent Em thank you for being with us and um, everybody don't forget to uh, get ready for Trejo's Tacos coming soon to Los Angeles <laughs> and uh, good night from the Isle of Man good night this has been Isle of Man 
reach us at isleofmanpod at gmail.com with your questions, comments, and sponsorship ideas. Follow us on Twitter at, at isleofmanpod. 